Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to do today in this audio, Titus chapter 2, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 15. Our context is this, in chapter 1, Paul gave Titus the qualification for the elders that Titus should be appointing on the island of Crete, recognizing, I should say, on the island of Crete. And now having told Titus the qualification for elders, one of which is that an elder must know how to teach, he now talks about sound teaching in chapter 2. But he also talks about godliness, too. So I'm going to call this chapter Good Teaching and Good Actions. Good words, good deeds. We start with verse 1, Titus 2. But you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. We'll start with the sound doctrine right now. In fact, the ESV has sound doctrine. Holman Christian Study Bible has sound teaching. The but there, but, that's in contradistinction to the false legalist that Paul had condemned in the last chapter. For example, in verse 11, Titus 1, it is necessary to silence them, these false teachers. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. And verses 15 and 16 of Titus 1, to be pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. He's talking about the ascetic, Gnostic type legalists that are opposing the Christians on Crete. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. But you, Titus, do the opposite of all that. The you should be emphatic, as the NIV Study Bible says. But you, Titus, compared to all these false legalists. He's mentioned sound teaching not only in chapter 1 of Titus, but also in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Titus 1.9, he says this, Holding to the faithful messages taught so that he, the qualified elder, will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it, sound doctrine, and teaching needs to understand the doctrines of the faith. 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Titus 2, 2 says this, Older men are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. The older men here, could that refer to the elders in the church, the, the recognized elders? John Gill and Adam Clark deny that. They were talked about in the previous chapter. Paul would not be talking about them here. And not only that, if the parallels in the context show that Paul is talking about older men in general, just old people, old guys in the church, because he mentions older women in the next verse. So it makes sense that he's talking about older men here. They're to be level-headed. The NIV has temperate. They're to be level-headed and temperate. I guess a temperate person who doesn't get soused with alcohol, for example, he tends to be level-headed. He's sober-minded. So we see here that sound doctrine demands right conduct of everyone, regardless of their age, their sex, their position, whether, whether they're older men, older women, whether they're elders or just people in the church. It's got to be level-headed, temperate. Now, this goes along with the idea I said, you know, good words, good deeds. Excuse me, good, good words, good actions. Not only talking good talk, sound doctrine, but walking a righteous, godly walk. Both are to be required here because people are not going to listen to elders who are living an intemperate life. They're just not going to listen to them. But anyway, he's not talking about elders here. I just said probably he's talking about elder men in general. They're to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. Now, this, of course, is in opposition to the Cretans in the previous chapter who Paul said were lazy gluttons. Quoting Epimenides, the, the false prophet, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy guttons. But older men in the church are not to be like Cretans in general. You're to be level-headed. Remember, these older men are Cretans. They're reacting against their pagan culture coming out of that, and they're 
behaving in, in an opposite fashion. Everybody's got a culture, and culture's good to a point. But at some point, the culture deviates from Christ. I lived in a foreign culture for years. I watched the subcultures in China. Even everybody's got cultures and subcultures galore. But our allegiance is not to our culture, folks. It's to Jesus Christ. Older men are to have endurance, Titus. Paul tells Titus. Well, endurance is a special characteristic of older men, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. They have endured for a lifetime life's trials and vicissitudes. They've put up with a lot of crap all their life. This life is hard, folks. And even though God gives you a wonderful life and you've had a lot of pleasures and joys in that life, I don't care. Those pleasures and joys will be peppered with disappointments, pain, garbage, oppressions, you name it. It'll be there. Titus 2, 3 through 5. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands, so that God's message will not be slandered. Now, these older women, could they be some kind of office in the church? A couple of possibilities, if that's true. The wives of elders, in other words, elders, elderesses. Oh, no, there's no indication of that anywhere in the scripture. John Gill denies that. I do, too. Oh, excuse me, John Gill suggests not an elderess, but uh, the wife of an elder. She's not an official elderess, but she's married to a, a male elder. John Gill denies that. I can't prove that one way or the other. There's another option is they could be the older widows who cared for the poor. John Gill denies that too, but let's see where that might come from. First Timothy 5, 9, no widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, etc., so these widows may have been an office in the church, a so-called office, but I don't think so. Not even elders are called by an office, by the way. He who desires the office of an elder, as King James has it, the office is in italics, it is not in the Greek. So it's he who desires to be an elder, not the office of an elder. And I don't think there was an office of widows who cared for the poor. And then T Paul would be telling Timothy here, since they've been in that office of widowship, if you will, then support them when they're 60 years old. I don't think so. That's a lot of speculation. He's just talking about elder women in general. John Gill and Adam Clark affirm that. Now, why does Paul, uh, yes, why does Paul tell Titus to admonish the older women? He does, it's really interesting. He never tells the younger women what to do. Somebody, and I forgot where it is. Oh, yeah, here, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that that's because Titus is a single guy and he's young. And it wouldn't look right for him to be admonishing young women on what to do. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know why it would be improper for a person back then when the life expectancy was a little bit shorter than it is today. So I think that's, again, an example of the speculative ability of commentators. Let's just take it for the simple, simple reading of what it is. Older women. And I think what Paul is doing here, he's just going through the different subdivisions of a church and saying everybody needs to be on their P's and Q's. And, and the reason is because he doesn't want the reputation of the church to be hurt. Older women would be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers. Uh, older women have a tendency to gossip, I would think, because they don't have a job and they don't have kids to take care of anymore and they're living by themselves. And what else does they do but talk about other people? And, and gossip very quickly can become slander, and so Paul says don't do that. And, the, and these older women should not be addicted to much wine. Now, this is obviously not a prohibition on drinking any wine, because it says much wine. 
Clark's got an interesting comment on this. He says, It is likely, therefore, that it was customary among the elderly women, both Greeks and Romans, to drink much wine. And because it was inconsistent with that moderation which the gospel requires, the apostle forbids it. Doubtless it was not considered criminal among them because it was a common practice. And we know that the Greek philosophers and physicians who denied wine to young persons judged it to be necessary for the aged. <laughs> so we've got to give wine to the old folks, keep them pacified. I don't know about that, but that's kind of interesting. At any rate, please don't use that verse to say it's a sin to drink wine. You bring reproach upon the gospel when you do that. Of course, now today is you will find young Christians, millennial Christians everywhere, drinking margaritas. And unfortunately, I don't drink, so I don't know the names of all these alcoholic liquors. I've taken one out of a guy in China one time, American guy. And he was ordering all this liquor. He never got drunk, so I don't. I didn't say anything. But wine ain't going to really get you unless you drink a lot of it. But you start drinking a lot of that hard stuff, it ain't going to be long before you are inebriated in this in violation of the Scripture. All right, these older women are to teach what is good. Now, this is in private. This is not in church. Women were not allowed to teach in public meetings. First Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Okay, well, she's... First of all, she's teaching in private, and second of all, she is teaching young women. She's not teaching uh, uh, other people. Now, there's a question as opposed to as to what is the content of this good teaching. Is it merely how to be good wives? The context favors this because verses 4 and 5 say the young women should be self-controlled, pure homemakers, loving, submissive to their husbands, loving their children. So it's family-type, domestic-type stuff that these old women are to teach. This is what, and that's a strong argument, I think, but I don't believe it's true because I think it's referring to doctrinal teaching. For one thing, kids need to learn doctrinal stuff. The mother's there. Why not to teach kids? And you got older women there. The men are out working. you got older women and young women hanging around the homes. Why not teach them the truths of the gospel? Point number one and point number two, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that this teaching that these old women are supposed to engage in relates only to domestic matters, such as submission to husbands and so forth. Well, how much of the Bible has that sound doctrinal teaching? That's doctrinal teaching. When you start talking about how children are to obey their parents and wives are to obey their husbands, that's all in the scriptures. That's doctrinal. How many, so how can you make a distinction between what's domestic and what's doctrinal? And if you say, yeah, but 1 Timothy 2.12 says a woman's not supposed to teach exercise authority over a man. First problem you got is what is a man? 18-year-old kid? Is he a man or not? How about a 12-year-old kid? How about a 14-year-old kid? You got that problem. And besides, 1 Timothy 2.12 is dealing with order in the church. It's not talking about private teaching sessions because nothing's going to be violated. You're not making a public example of anything. You got an older woman teaching a younger woman. How is that going to violate any kind of gender appropriateness? I don't see how. So I'm going to assume that women are allowed to teach other women and their children. Now, it's interesting, the uh, Southern Baptist lady, Beth Moore, who's occasioned such ire amongst opponents of women teachers, the reason I say this is because there's a woman in my church who, if you say woman teacher, she turns purple. She gets so upset. I mean, she really doesn't like women teachers. And so she's constantly on Beth Moore. And I don't know a thing about Beth Moore. So she goes on and on, this woman in my church. So, and my wife, somebody gave her a book by Beth Moore. I said, well, I better look at this. So I looked at it, and it's mostly about family stuff. She talks about relationships, hurts, healings, that kind of stuff. Because women, that's just what they're good at. 
I don't know whether Beth Moore teaches doctrinal stuff to men. If she does, I don't think it's a good idea because I think it violates the Scripture. It's not really in church meetings sometime. I mean, you could say, well, she's teaching over the Internet. And if men listen, how can she help? I, 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 I can go along with that argument. But once you have men sitting there listening to women and, uh, and the children see that you are setting up a role of the woman leading in the house and the man being a passive listener, and that, folks, ain't good for your family. Well, anyway, enough of that. Paul says uh, the woman is supposed to teach what is good, and he mentions what is good, how to be self-controlled, pure homemakers, loving husbands, and so forth. But what would teaching something bad be in opposition to that? Well, old women could be teaching young women old wives' tales, which elder women would be prone to, as Gill says. They could be t- teaching superstitious customs and rites and ceremonies, as all cultures have. Elder women would likely be prone to that, too, I would think. The older women could be talking about the intrigues of loves, as Gill puts it. In other words, the latest romance. I would think women in general would be especially prone to that, too. I, shoot, I like that, too. I like to see who, who's falling in love with whom when they're single. Now, and then they're married. Now, that's a different story. You don't like that too much, but when they're single. Or maybe the older women could be teaching the younger women something filthy and obscene, John Gill says that, but I wouldn't think that elder women would be prone to be talking like that to the younger women. Maybe I'm naive about women in the ancient world, but I just, I don't know. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Now, if you've got to teach somebody to do something, what does that mean? It means that the person being taught is not doing it naturally. He's got to be taught how to do it. I didn't learn how to do multiplication naturally. Somebody had to teach me. So, if you've got to be taught how to be a loving husband and a loving mother... Well, that implies that loving one's husbands and loving one's children is not a natural, easy thing to do, especially when the kids are little hellions. I've just talked to a young Chinese mother who's having a hard time raising her little daughter, and the little daughter is a mess, and for good reason. I mean, this Chinese woman had a horribly checkered, disastrous marriage, checkered past, because she listened to a feminist friend of hers who had been divorced four times, and she listened and thus wrecked her marriage. So... Now she's having a hard time, and she is reading stuff about Christian child raising, and she's trying. she is trying to learn. And there's an older woman in her church, which got busted up by the Chinese, those loving, tolerant Chinese communists, busted the church up. But there was a woman, a godly woman in that church, about my age, I guess, maybe a little bit younger than me, and she had raised some really great kids. I knew the kids. And that woman was teaching this young Chinese woman. The older woman was from Texas, and the younger and the other Chinese woman was being taught by the Texas lady how to love her children. And the good news is, is that she's had a breakthrough. She said God has taught her, the Chinese woman has learned how to love her daughter who has been causing so much trouble. And she apologized to her ex-husband for all the nonsense she had done. And she said her ex-husband is actually treating her nice now. Gave her a car, helping her raise the kid, all kind of good stuff. Folks, don't listen to feminism. Listen to when the older women, or ladies, young women, listen to when the older women tell you how to love your husbands and raise your children, and you will be happy. But if you listen to this feminist, antichrist stuff that's floating through our culture, if you buy into it for even one second, you will be so, so sorry. Sooner or later, it's going to come back to bite you. Now, Paul tells Titus to tell the older women to tell the younger women to love their husbands. Well, that's interesting. I've, I've been going around saying the Bible never tells women to, re, to love their husbands, but just to respect them. Well, actually, indirectly here, Paul did tell Titus, who tells the older women, who tells the younger women to love their husbands. So I might have been being a little too strong on that 
idea. The idea being is that the main thing that women need to do is respect their husbands because men need respect. Women need love and nurturing and kindness and gentleness and all that. But men need to be respected. They don't care about love and gentleness and kindness and stuff so much as they care about respect. I learned this from a Christian marriage counselor who made a huge increase in the number of marriages that were being healed when he started telling the wives to, instead of loving their husbands, he told them to respect their husbands. Interesting. But I don't guess it's quite as cut and dried as I was making it out to be, because Paul says here, Titus, teach the old women to teach the young women to love their husbands and their children, of course, to be self-controlled. Well, let's back up a minute. Let me give you a quote from John Gill as to how wives could love their husbands. Quote, to help and assist them all they can, to seek their honor and interest, to endeavor to please them in all things, to secure peace, harmony, and union, to carry it affectionately to them and sympathize them in all afflictions and distresses. I got a wife like that. Lord have mercy. Whenever, when I read about these divorce, and I used to practice divorce law, and I read in the papers about all these celebrity divorces, I say, oh, thank God, I don't have to put up with that. And I've known Christians, Christian women, who have wrecked their marriage. My husband's not spiritual enough. He doesn't read the Bible to me enough. You know, and then you watch the marriage crumble and disintegrate. It's really tragic. Well, you can't beat it. You can't beat a Christian family. Where you have a wife that, let me read the quote again from Gill, helps and assists in all that they can, seeks the husband's honor and interest to in, and endeavors to please him in all things, who secures peace, harmony, and union, who carries such affectionately to them and sympathizes with them in all afflictions and distresses. I remember one day, I'll never forget, I lost two jobs in one time because of a bureaucratic screw-up at the college I was teaching for. I was teaching in a remote campus and the main campus. University of South Carolina, and they had a, some kind of a law that you can, that's double dipping, they said, which was an absurd law, if you ask me, at least as it applied to me, because I was teaching it to different sets of students. I wasn't doing anything wrong, and they said, I said, okay, well, fire me for one job. No, they got to fire me from both. And so at the time, I'm a PhD student. I got no money. I'm living in a 14 foot trailer that's about three inches wide. I got three kids in there. We're on top of each other's heads. I come back. And I tell my wife, I lost both jobs today. I'm in shock. I'm miserable. I feel like I'm ready to just roll over and die in the grass. And my wife looks at me and she says, let's have a birthday party. Somebody, some one of the kids was having a birthday party. No big deal. I never seen anything like it. I got a friend who never worries about anything. I never seen anybody never worries, that worries so much. And I told him one time, his name was Dan too. I said, Dan, you never worry about anything. And, and the other Dan told me, he said, that's true. That's true. I don't worry about things very much, but I'm an amateur. Your wife is a professional. <laughs> so, but at any rate, you got somebody like that, you're going to live a happy life. But if you got somebody that is bitching, moaning, and whining all the time, oh my gosh, what a hellish way to live. Women, younger women are supposed to love their children, and loving them does not mean to spoil them. That's not the same thing. Here's another good quote from Gill. Loving them, quote, not with a fond, foolish, loose, and ungoverned affection, but so as to seek their real good, and not only their temporal, but spiritual and eternal welfare, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and to use and keep proper discipline and government over them. For otherwise, amidst all the fondness of natural affection, a parent may be said to hate a child. In other words, you want to hate your child? Spoil him. That's the best way you can hate a child. 
Now, you know, the world's not going to hear child-rearing advice like this. So you want to be happy with your children? Raise them up as Christians, biblically, the way the Spirit wants us to do. Proverbs 13.24 says, The one who will not use the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him disciplines him diligently. Now, of course, in modern-day America, because of the influences of liberal psychology, I'll put it, it's not considered fashionable to spank your kid. Oh, that's brutality. That's child abuse. Well, right here it says the one who will not use the rod hates his son. Now, you could say that rod is symbolic of discipline, and we're just changing the matter of discipline. And I can, I can grant that's a possibility, maybe. It's probably not likely, but it's a possibility. But I will point out that even if I grant you that, it's still obviously nothing wrong with using a rod to discipline your son. If you do it enough, they won't need it anymore. They'll get disciplined, and you won't have to use the rod anymore. And, of course, that some kids are a little are hard, more hard-nosed than the others. I mean, I had a daughter that she was just... I had two kids that were so compliant, it was ridiculous. It was so easy to be a parent. But, by golly, that third one came along, and she was hell on wheels, boy. I'm telling you, I remember one time... She got in a fight with her cat, and her arm was all scratched, and she came crying, and I was so mad. I was so mad at that cat. I went running after the cat and ran the cat out. The cat's name was Tom, black and white cat. I ran that cat out, and then every now and then you'd hear some crying going on, and she's in the fight with the cat again. So I went around and saw the cat backed up against the wall, and my little girl, she's about two or three, you know, she, or four maybe. She was not very old. She's up there slapping the crap out of that cat's head. No wonder the cat scratched her. It was self-defense. And I blamed the cat. No, she was something else. And I finally got to the point where the rod didn't work anymore. I said, I'm not even going to spank you anymore. It's hopeless. Well, maybe, you know. In other words, I'm willing to, because of my extremely difficult personal circumstances, willing to make exceptions to the fact that sometimes a rod doesn't work. But most of the time it does. And by the way, the good news is she is a dedicated Christian, the most wonderful wife. She's got two daughters of her own. She's smart. She's intelligent. She's written a novel. She has just turned out to be a wonderful child. She's not a child anymore, I mean, but she's turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful woman. All three of my kids turned out to be very nice. And we didn't, I didn't spare the rod. Oh, but if I had to listen to these, I remember some lawyer, fellow law student of mine, she was a woman, she was married. And she was talking about how horrible it was to discipline kids. And I said, well, what happens when the kid's at Thanksgiving, he starts walking through the mashed potatoes? What are you going to do? I just couldn't resist it. And she says, no, I'm not going to discipline. I said, well, lots of luck. I said, well, at least you'll be a lawyer. You can go defend him when he ends up being arrested for drug dealing or whatever he gets arrested for. These women, these younger women are to be self-controlled, Paul says, especially with regard to eating and drinking. I would imagine they're to be pure. That's probably referring to sexually. They're not supposed to be catting around with anybody. They are to be homemakers. Now, let's look at that word again. I love this word. I've got two daughters right now that are not working in the workforce. They are homemakers. But does the society give them any credit for it? Oh, you just surrendered your identity to your husband and you're just a nothing. You're just sitting there changing diapers, and that's all you are. I got two daughters and one daughter-in-law that are doing that. That takes care of all three of my kids. And they're homemakers, and you know what? They ain't nothing harder than being a homemaker. Try it sometime. You talk about multitasking. Whoo! Kids, they make a lot of noise, and they break things. And they're crying all the time, and they're getting fights with one another, and you're constantly having to train them. 
And then after you do all that, then when your husband comes home and he's exhausted, you know, you need to be nice to him too. It's not easy being a homemaker. Does our society give any credit to homemakers? Well, I taught management for years in college, and I remember one time at my first college, I asked the girl, I said, only girls vote in the class. I said, how many of you have ever been encouraged to be a homemaker, praised or or seen homemakers praised or, or in any way encouraged to be a homemaker and not one girl ever raised her hand? And I did this every year, every time I taught that class, every semester, I taught that class every semester, and every time, not once did they raise their hand. Oh, but they're going to be president of the United States, they're going to be an astronaut or something. Well, sure, individual women might could do that. I mean, Sarah Palin ended up hunting bear in the wilds of Alaska. Okay, that's fine. But, you know, why can't we praise homemakers? They got a hard, hard job. They ought to be getting given credit for it. I really wish every evangelical feminist would recite this verse, verse 5, a hundred times before they go to bed at night, before they retire for bed. Let me read it again. Verse 5, Titus 2. Well, I tell you what, let me back up and start in verse 3 to get the whole sentence. Older women are to be, let me drop it down to verse 5, are to be self, are to teach the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind and submissive to their husbands. I can mention that too. And of course, this is assuming Christian husbands who are going to treat them as queens, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. We're going to wash them with the water of the word, and they're not going to beat them over the head with a frying pan or a stick. There's no shame for women to do a good job in keeping their home. It is an honor and a privilege. Here's what John Gill says. These women should are, quote, minding their own family affairs, not gadding abroad and inspecting into and busying themselves about other people's matters. This is said in opposition to what women are prone to. This is talking about the elderly women in on Crete. Adam Clark says a woman who spends much time in visiting must neglect her family. The idleness, dirtiness, impudence, and profligacy of the children will soon show how deeply criminal the mother was in rejecting the apostle's advice. Ooh, criminal. I wonder what he would think about feminists we have today. And I know that women sometimes have to work because they get, the husband gets killed or they get divorced or whatever. You know, I realize that. But how hard is that? How hard is it to be raising kids, and then having to go out and face all the garbage in the work world at the same time. It's not ideal, friends. And I don't think we ought to hold up hard cases when things are rough to say this is the way it ought to be when things aren't rough. Hard cases make bad law. It's best for the wife to take care of the kids at home. Homemakers is translated, or in the Greek, literally as guardians of the house. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, guardians of the house look after the house. That's your bailiwick, women. I saw some interesting research about Chinese housewives, and it was noted that that most Chinese housewives work outside the home in addition to their husbands working outside the home. And then when they come home, the women end up doing the cooking. And the research said that overwhelming majority of the women in China were happy with that. Now, they like the husbands to, if I remember correctly, they like the husbands to wash the dishes after the cooking and so forth. But as far as the cooking is concerned, they wanted to do it because they wanted to have somewhere where they were in charge. They wanted to have the kitchen. That's theirs, by golly, and you don't mess with it. I remember reading a marriage counseling book before I was married. It said, when you're doing, get your first house, let the wife decorate the kitchen the way she wants to. If it's purple, if she wants purple, let it be purple. However she wants you got to let her have her room. So, it's kind of interesting female psychology. I thought men don't ever think about that too much. 
Now, the young women are supposed to behave in all these proper ways so that the enemies of the gospel will not have a devilish delight in pointing out the sins of Christians. Or as Titus puts it in verse 5, so that God's message will not be slandered. You got busybodies going around wrecking homes, shacking up with other men's uh, other wives, husbands, letting the kids run wild, and so forth. That's really going to give the church a bad name. People are going to say, why, why would I want to be a Christian if you're living like that? Paul is very concerned about the reputation of the gospel, not only here, but in other places. Let me read some scriptures. Romans 2.24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ooh. Christians are giving the church a bad name. 1 Timothy 5.14, Therefore I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. In other words, you don't behave properly, the devil's going to start wagging his tongue at you to the devil's agents, the unwashed and unsaved masses. 1 Timothy 6.1, All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters to be worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Oh, you got a bunch of slave revolts. You're going to start a slave rebellion. Oh, that's going to make the church look bad, so don't do it. Titus 2.8, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed having nothing bad to say about us. We don't want that to happen. We don't want the, our opponents to say anything bad about us. And I think about these people living in $23 million mansions. You don't think that the world is using that to beat Christians over the head with and to shame people out of the church? Oh, yes, they are. But, oh, that doesn't matter. I'm a king's kid. I'm, I'm rich because God made me prosperous. Absolutely repulsive to me, in my humble opinion. Here's what Clark says. Behold your boasted religion. It professes to reform all things, and its very professors are no better than others. Our heathenism is as good as your Christianity, say the b bad guys. These are cutting reproaches, and much they will have to answer for for those who cause for these blasphemies. I think about one young Christian couple I know, well, they weren't married, but they were living together and leaving condoms all over the landlord's house. Oh, that's a great witness. I know another Christian couple who put on Facebook, oh, it's Valentine's Day. They weren't married, and they talked about the hotel room they went and, you know, and how they spent the night together. Well, hey, heathens are doing that. Christians are going to do it too, huh? That's not going to make it look good. We go now to verses 6 and 7. In the same way, Paul tells Titus, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. In the same way, what does he mean? In the same way as he told the older women how they were supposed to counsel the younger women. All that stuff we just talked about. In the same way, we want you young men to be just as good. Now, Paul is asking Titus to directly address the young men, not indirectly through the elder women to the young women, but directly to the young men. They should be... Self-controlled, Gill says that means temperate, chaste, modest, moderate, wise, and prudent. Clark says, quote, sober-mindedness in young men is a rare qualification, and they who have it not plunge into excesses and irregularities which in general sap the foundation of their constitution, bring on premature old age, and not seldom lead to a fatal end. It's a miracle I'm here today because of the stupid things I did when I was young, like when I put a smoke bomb in a hamburger restaurant right during the time of the radical hippie riots that was real smart wasn't it i used to i tell people this all the time how do you spell youth s-t-u-p-i-d i even told young people that several times i didn't even mind if they got me a little upset about it because it's true young men need to be self-controlled i wasn't 
self-controlled in everything, including putting bombs, smoke bombs in restaurants. You need to be self-controlled about that. You need to make yourself an example of good works. Putting a smoke bomb in a hamburger restaurant is not a good work. Now, these young men are to make themselves an example of good works. Again, you lead by example. It's not just what you talk. It's what you walk. It's not just doctrine. It's deeds, too. Not just doctrine, not just deeds, not just walk, but also talk. And you're supposed to behave in all dignity. You know, I, I think about Mark Driscoll. He, of course, he's lost his church because he behaved in a quite ungodly fashion, according to all the press reports. I don't want to judge the case. I wasn't there. But he's the guy that went around cussing like a sailor in his sermons and saying, well, that's just the culture. Well, I could give you a whole dissertation on what I think about that, but I would just suggest that that is not exactly what I would call dignified teaching. I watch, talking about me and dignified, I'm watching the degradation of America's America's dying. And one thing that's dying is learning how to disagree with one another in a respectful manner. There is a a woman, I don't I forgot her name, she's running I think she's running in a Democrat primary against another Democrat congressman. And she said that except I'm not gonna tell you exactly how she said it, she put on a tweet, a public tweet, said this her opponent is Wiping her fanny with the Constitution, except she didn't quite say it that politely as I just did it. I mean, you know, is that the sort of stuff we want our elected representatives, how they act? Well, I don't, and I don't want teachers in the church cussing like sailors. So use some dignity in your teaching. Also, integrity. Integrity means you don't set up straw men. You don't attack people just for the sake of attacking people. You attack their doctrines, maybe, but not their persons. You you state the facts accurately. You don't twist the facts. You don't make up facts. You don't omit uh, exonerating facts of your opponents. All that kind of stuff. That's integrity. That's how you teach. And, of course, when it says young men should be self-controlled, they have trouble being self-controlled, as I just mentioned. Temperate, not going to parties and getting drunk or ingesting substances into their bodies we go to titus 2 8 your message is to be sound beyond by the way let me i forgot to mention something here notice that paul is giving directions concerning four demographic sections of the churches in titus he lists old men old men are to be level-headed verse 2 he lists old women in verse 3 older women are to be reverent etc then he mentions young men in this verse we just talked about and in verse 4 he also mentioned young women to love their husbands and love their children so what he did was, is he focused on the differences, the different groups, uh, subgroups of the church, and focused on the problems that they might most likely have. There's nothing wrong with doing that. He never thinks for a minute that we ought to segregate the men from the women and have separate Sunday school classes for old people and young people and young kids. I know it's easier to do that because it just is. And sometimes and there's nothing wrong with doing it, but it doesn't mean that it should be done all the time. I'm sure they didn't do it in the early church. I'm sure they all met together as one body. I don't believe in juvenile segregation. It's children's church and Sunday school. The children ought to be right there with the adults participating in the church. Oh, well, how are we going to do that? Well, if you meet in a home, you won't have any trouble doing that. As long as the kids are controlled and you can control them. We go to verse 8. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach, reproach, Titus, so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. Now, the message there is that your word, your word is to be sound. Your speech is to be sound, in other words. So there's two ways you can look at this. One is it could be teaching. Your teaching is to be sound beyond reproach. Adam Clark says that's exactly what Paul means here. You need to have good teaching. 
Here's what Gill says, the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus should be used and the doctrines of the gospel be expressed as near as can be in the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, such speech or language should be chosen that is plain, easy, and acceptable, and conveys just ideas of things, and which being agreeable to the scriptures of truth and the analogy of faith, cannot be justly found fault with, which is a fancy way of saying you need to have good teaching. John Gill suggested another possibility is your word, your speech, is to be without filthiness, foolish talk, without jesting. As in Titus 2.8, sound of speech which is beyond reproach. Ah, that's the verse where we are now. In other words, a different way to translate instead of the Holman Christian Study Bible, your message is to be sound. In the New American Standard has, you need to be sound in speech, not in doctrine, but in speech. And the New American Bible says the same thing. You should be, and you should use sound speech that cannot be criticized. In other words, the way you talk. Not what you talk, but the way you talk. No dirty words, no nastiness. Mark Driscoll, are you listening? So that the opponent will be shamed. That's probably referring to the heathen philosophers that are wandering around Crete. Could be Jewish rabbis. It could be Judaizing Christians. It could be heretics. Whatever. I'm sure... Titus met them all. Titus 2, 9 through 10. Paul continues, Slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Now, slaves being submissive, of course, that word submissive will drive modern-day egalitarians crazy. They say, see, there is slavery. A wife is submissive to the husband. It's just like she's a slave. And, see, Christianity supports slavery. Therefore, Christianity is evil. Well, let's look at that. We can look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Paul says, Slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Oh, oh, how can we get rid of the evil institution of slavery if everybody, every slave has that right? Well, let's look at this. First of all, there were lots of Christian slaves, and it would be logical for a Christian slave to think that since he was free in Christ, free from the world, the flesh, and the devil, he could be free from his master. But that doesn't follow. Paul knew that Christianity would be in terrible trouble if it were linked to slave revolts. Let me read a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. In no rank was there more danger of the doctrine of spiritual equality and freedom of Christians being misunderstood than in that of slaves. It was natural for the slave who had become a Christian to forget his place and put himself on a social level with his master. Hence the charge for each to abide in the sphere in which he was when converted. Okay, so Paul's trying to protect the uh, uh, the the reputation of the church. He doesn't want to be associated with civil unri- uh, unrest and rioting and, and slave revolts, which is understandable. But he also says, let's look at more stuff that shows that he was not in favor of slavery as an institution. 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24, each person should remain in this life situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. That shows that Paul thinks that freedom is better than slavery. He was not in favor of slavery. Despite what any Christian polemicist would love to say about him, why would Paul be in flavor in favor of slavery when so many Christians were slaves? His fellow brothers, was his converts. His fellow Christians were slaves. If he, Yeah, he would say, yeah, if you can get out of this, do it. If your master wants to emancipate you, yes, sir, I'm out of here. But 
don't go getting involved in slave revolts. Now, I tell you, this idea of Christians submitting to worldly injustices and difficulties instead of getting involved in secular enthusiasms for reform, that's real hard for Christians. I remember Watchman Nee right before the World War World War II, and the Japanese were just doing all kinds of terrible things to the Chinese, including the rape of Nanjing. You might have heard about that. Millions of Chinese Christians murdered. Uh, not Chinese Christians, Chinese people were murdered. And Watchman Nee said something. He said, I'm not going to get involved in any Japanese activities. He says, because if I kill one of those Japanese, it might be one of my brothers. <laughs> well, I think Watchman Nee, quite frankly, was extreme on that issue. I, when I see what the Japanese did to the Chinese, I would have been in the Chinese army fighting against them, the Japanese. I don't have a problem with that. But Watchman Nee said, I am just going to stick to the gospel here. And he got a lot of grief over that, as you can imagine. So be careful how you condemn people for not getting involved in something. I remember I saw a movie about Jesse Owens, who was the famous American track runner, who showed up Adolf Hitler, the the race, the uh, white supremacist, uh, anti-Semite, in Germany in the 1930s at the Olympics, and Jesse Owens beat <laughs> beat all the Germans. You know, it's a pretty cool story. But if I remember this story correctly, he didn't get involved in civil rights politics, trying to get voting rights and and and, and such. Uh, and other civil rights for black Americans. He didn't get involved in it. Well, he did more for helping the black race than he could ever do by campaigning for some politician somewhere. But boy, oh boy, did he get grief from his friends back home for not getting involved. So Michael Jordan was criticized for the same thing. He said he just wasn't interested in politics. He was interested in being a good basketball player. So I guess it's not just Christians that have that problem. But to accuse Paul of being in favor of slavery is nonsense. I'm sure he wouldn't go around and tell people in polygamous marriages that needed to bust the marriages up. Missionaries have faced that problem. Oh, what do we do? we got polygamous marriages. Do we tell them to break up the marriages? Of course you don't. You can't throw people out on the street, tr- throw wives out on the street with no means of support because the institution they happened to find, the, find themselves in was un- unjust. It's unfortunate. That's the way the world is. Human beings are not a pleasant bunch of people, and we come up with things that aren't so pleasant. But... God's remedy sometimes is not to go in there with a machete and smash everything up up because the results are not going to be very nice. So this is what Paul is talking about slavery here is he wants to preach the gospel. He doesn't want to be involved in social movements to end slavery. Now, again, why would he be in favor of slavery when so many Christians were slaves? He also enjoined masters, Ephesians 6, 9, and masters treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both your masters and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. In other words, don't be favorite. Don't treat your slaves any differently because they are in a degraded economic situation and degraded legal and social situation. Treat them equally with yourselves. Now that's going to have an effect. If enough people start thinking that way, that is going to have an effect. Now Paul tells Titus to tell slaves that they shouldn't talk back. Now, John Gill says slaves and servants, or slaves who were were servants, would be especially tempted to do this. Now, in my opinion, I would think that would be a dangerous thing for a slave to do, to talk back to your master. Well, maybe things were kind of loose between the master and the slave. I don't know. It might depend on the master and the slave, their relationship. But talking back to your master, I would think it's like talking back to your boss you got to be careful when you're talking to your boss. I'm sorry, you just have to because they have power over you. And then he 
Paul enjoins against stealing. Slaves should not steal, verse 10. Now, stealing was a common problem in the slavery of the South of the USA. I happened to read one of the books I was reading about it. The system of slavery probably guarantees this is going to happen. You can't, if a slave just can't go down to the convenience store and buy something, he needs something, he doesn't have it, and so he's in charge of the, the master's pantry, and there it is. They call it pilfering. In other words, not huge amounts of stealing, but just enough to get the little things that you need. Adam Clark says this, It has been remarked that among the heathens, this species of fraud was very frequent, and servants were so noted for purloying and embezzling their master's property that fur, which is Latin, which signifies a thief, was commonly used to signify a servant. So servant and thieves were so close to get together identified in the public mind, the language actually ran the two together. Clark says, quote, It was necessary, therefore, that the apostle should be so very particular in his directions to servants as they were in general thieves almost by profession. And now in verse 10, Paul says, You need to do all this. Slaves should do all these things. They should demonstrate utter faithfulness. That means just not just lip service, but utter faithfulness to their masters so that they may adorn the teaching of our God and Savior and everything. Adorn means to make a decoration of. Slaves were to decorate God's teaching by their behavior. Same thing with people who work. You treat your boss right, sooner or later, he's most likely going to treat you right. That's just human nature. Paul mentions God our Savior. Of course, Jesus is our Savior. It's amazing how many times God our Savior is used. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior. 1 Timothy 2.3, this is good and it pleases God our Savior. Titus 2.10, or stealing. You should, well, that's the verse we're on now. I'll skip that one. Jude 1.25, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God, as well as Jesus, is our Savior. What does he save us from? Sin and death. There's no point in having a Savior if there's nothing to be saved from. And if we're not going to mention that people are in need of salvation from sin and death, then our gospel is worth is, wor is worthless. It is just as worthy as salt that has been thrown out on the manure pile. Now, Paul calls God his Savior, even though he had, a, he had personally seen Jesus face to face. He knew that Jesus was God, and then he calls God Savior, so he knew that Jesus was... A, that Jesus the Savior was God also, just like God the Father was. In other words, that's a good argument, a Trinitarian argument. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. For, that means because, because the grace of God has appeared, the godly conduct that was just mentioned about slaves being, working with utter faithfulness and so forth, that conduct can come about because grace has appeared, because that kind of conduct is not natural. You feel like treating your boss with utter faithfulness? That's not natural. So because, for, that the grace of God has appeared with salvation to all people, this introduces the doctrinal basis for the ethical demands just stressed. As the NIV Study Bible says, for all those ethical things that slaves were supposed to do, as well as young men and old men and young women and old women, all those things they're supposed to do, how are they going to do all that? Because the grace of God has appeared? It's, it's grace. It's God. It's God to give us the gift of doing all these sanctified and holy things. You cannot walk in Christianity without the grace of God. You can't just look at Christian principles as a set of precepts, a rule book, and say, I'm going to follow that in my own strength because you will fail miserably. Now, what does it mean to say the grace of God has appeared? 
Well, it means the testimony about the grace of God. It doesn't mean that the grace of God is a pure of salvation for all people in the sense that everybody in the world gets saved because all people in the world aren't saved. So for the grace of God has appeared with salvation, that salvation is either given to all people, which we know can't be true, or it's been offered to all people. So the grace, the offer of the grace of God, if, if we can paraphrase a little bit here, for the offer of the, of the grace of God has appeared with salvation. Everybody sees it, and nobody is hindered from believing it. For all people, this grace has appeared. Now, every time you see all, you have a problem. Does it mean all people individually without exception, or does it mean all groups of people, all people without distinction? Jew as well as Gentile, male as, as just like women, and so forth. Well... Let's look at that. Let's, for the sake of argument, assume that all people is referring to all people without exception, every individual on earth. The problem with that is that all people individually have not been saved. Well, how do you get around that if you want to hold to this view that it refers to all people without exception, that the grace of God has appeared to? Well, you could say appear does not mean appeared in the sense of saving everybody. It just means it was preached to everybody. The problem with that is, is the gospel was not preached to every single individual person on earth. Adam Clark says this, Now it cannot be said, except in a very refined and spiritual sense, and I don't know what he means by that, it cannot be said that this gospel has appeared to all men. Well, of course not. So that's not going to do it if you want to maintain that this uh, all people means all people individually without exception. However, if you are an Arminian, a, a, like Adam Clark is, and you believe in the general atonement or unlimited atonement that Christ died and offered salvation for all people individually, well then, you could read it this way. For God has appeared with the offer of salvation for all people. And that actually is not a, that's a reasonable uh, reading of that verse, grammatically at least, but the problem is now you've got all the problems that general atonement has. Now I realize that most people do believe in general atonement. I don't. Here's two of the problems right here. First of all, God punishes sin twice. Jesus dies on the cross to die for unsaved John Doe, and then and then unsaved John Doe goes to hell. So John, unsaved John Doe is punished for his sins by what he suffers, and then John Doe's sins are paid for by Jesus for what he suffers because the atonement is for everybody, including the unsaved John Doe's. And so now there's a double payment for the sin. The worst problem with saying that salvation is for all people individually, offered to all people even though all people don't accept, the worst problem with that is that means that Jesus' blood atonement is limited in its ability to save. So ironically, general atonement is limited atonement, limited on its ability to save because it fails to save unsaved people. But that's a theological argument for another time. Let's look at option three, how we can save this interpretation that all people means all people individually without exception. And here's how you do that. Option three, the appearance, which is the preaching of the gospel, to all people will take time. So then the gospel will appear to everybody without exception as the years go on. Even as the sunshine has to wait on the rotation of the earth to enlighten all. The problem is that even today, the problem with that is that not even today the gospel is not preached to every individual. Not to mention that there are a lot of dead people who have never heard. So how you can say that the grace of gospel has been preached to every individual on earth? And not only meant that, it says that the grace of God has appeared. That sounds like it's the past, not what's going to happen in the future. All right, well, all those, let me go over those three options again. It's, it's, the first option is, is the gospel was not accepted by all people, but it was preached to all people. And that's what it means to say that grace appears to all people. 
Second option, grace appears to all people in the sense that the gospel was offered to all people, not just preached to all people, offered to all people individually. That's pretty close if you think about it. Hmm, it is kind of close. But it's a little bit of distinction because Clark denies the fact that the gospel was preached to everybody, but he affirms the fact that the atonement was for everybody. I don't know how the atonement can be for everybody if people don't actually get it offered to them. I don't know. But anyway, any rate, that's the second option. The third option is, is that the gospel will appear to every individual, but only as time goes on, I guess, at the end of the world. But that doesn't account for the dead people. I don't, that, that just doesn't work. So let's look at what it is. It means all people without distinction, as John Gill says, of every nation, of every age and sex, of every state and condition, high and low, rich and poor, bond and free, masters and servants. For example, in Colossians 1.6, the gospel that has come to you, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. So the gospel is going to all groups over the world. Now that fits the context well, as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown say, because Paul has listed in verses 2 through 9 several categories of people, slaves, old men, young men, old women, young women, all kinds of people without distinction. The gospel has appeared. That's, that's what it means, in my humble opinion. We go to verse 12. Instructing us, we're in the middle of a sentence. Let me just tell you the sentence of that, the subject of that word instructing is the grace, the grace of God which has appeared to all men. The, that grace is instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Now, the Greek for instructing is discipline. Instructing sounds like it's academic, you convey words or or doctrines i guess uh individual doctors to people but instructing is much more interesting than that or deep than that it it includes well if you translate it it's discipline as jameson fawcett brown says that includes the whole process of training a child as the NIV study bible says instruction encouragement correction and discipline which is more than just conveying factual knowledge or theories or whatever or theology not that anything wrong with theology or factual knowledge but but the word means more than just good teaching. It means good training also, instructing us this grace of God to deny godlessness, as these false teachers were doing, to deny worldly lust, to live in a sensible and God- godly way. Worldly lust, Adam Clark, includes these. Gluttony, drunkenness, lasciviousness, anger, malice, revenge, together with the immoderate love of riches, power, and fame. Your typical stuff. We're supposed to live that way in the present age, Paul tells Titus. That's now when sin still exists, contrasted to the future world where sin is conquered and the creation is redeemed. Now, that means that we're, that's the NIV Study Bible, and the NIV Study Bible means that the present age is when Paul is writing Titus means in the, the church age, between the first and the second advent, as opposed to the final state. However, I wonder whether it's the it could not be the present Jewish age. After all, the Jewish age wasn't destroyed till eighty seventy. Paul is writing in the sixties, and he's he might be saying, in this present age that we're living in, with all these false teachers and with all this persecution from Jerusalem and so forth, we're supposed to live righteous and godly even in that in that age, knowing that in the future age, when the end of the Old Testament age is over, and the covenant, uh, new covenant, is firmly established. Well, then that'll be the new age. I don't have any problem with that interpretation, but of course, some people say that deprives them of their hope of the future. Well, I don't think it does, but if you, if it does, you can take that present age as referring to the end of the world. 
excuse me, is this age now, the inner advent age between the first and second advents. And the new age, the age to come, refers to the future world. But I point out to you, age to come is used oftentimes to refer to the age after the Jewish age is over with. So the age to come would be the church age, not the final state. Well, whatever this age is, it's characterized by sin. Second Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel. This age. Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, God the Father. So the present age is evil as opposed to the future age, which is going to be righteous. We go to verse 13. While we wait until this in this present age, while we wait for the future age to come, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The blessed hope, blessed means happy. Adam Clark says, happy in the sure prospect of that glory which shall be revealed. Hope is a confident expectation of the future. It is not a mere wish. So a blessed hope is a happy hope. A happy, confident expectation of the future. So we're waiting and Jesus, this is a noun, by the way, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the one who gives us a happy, confident expectation of the future. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've studied Bible and John Gill says, says that appearing is referring to the second coming. I'll let that go, even though sometimes I wonder whether Paul is talking about what's coming up at 8070, but I'm not going to get involved in that right now. Paul mentions in 1st and 2nd Timothy the appearing of Christ to keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder whether that's 8070 because Timothy's supposed to keep the command until then. He's not going to be able to keep it until 2,000 plus years later. 2nd Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead because of his appearing and his kingdom. I don't see, well, that couldn't be 8070 either. I think it's ambiguous. I think you need to take your choice. Now, Jesus is explicitly called God here because the last part of the phrase says the glory of our great God and Savior. Jesus is God and Jesus is Savior. Now, how would Trinitarians try to get around that? Well, they'll say it's not translated right. And they might point to the KGV, which says the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that separates out God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and it makes it seem like they're two persons. It doesn't help as much in trying to prove that Jesus Christ is God. The NIV Study Bible says this is not a good, is not the best translation we could use here. But John Gill says grammatical reasons say that, that God and Savior and Jesus Christ are all hooked together. He says there is but one Greek article to God and Savior which shows that both are predicated of one and the same being. In other words, Jesus is God and Jesus is Savior. The NIV Study Bible says this is an explicit testimony to the deity of Christ. We turn now to the last two verses in this chapter, verses 14 and 15. Paul continues... He, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Jesus redeems us from all lawlessness. From all lawlessness, redeem means to buy out of slavery at a high cost. The purchase price was his blood. And we're redeemed from lawlessness in this case. That was a high purchase price, his blood, so that we don't have to be a slave to lawlessness anymore. Notice that Paul tells Titus to be eager to do good works. And that shows that grace does not lead to licentiousness, as is so often charged. In fact, we saw in verses 14 and 15 that grace instructing us to deny lust and ungodliness. Grace does not produce 
profligacy, it produces restraint and morality and godliness. Say these things, all the contents of the whole chapter, is what the NIV Study Bible thinks he's referring to. Everything, say all these things to the different groups in your churches and encourage the rebuke with all authority. Now, it's difficult to do this. That's why Paul exhorted Titus to do it. It's real difficult to rebuke people and say, hey, this is the way it ought to be. Because remember, there's no status authority in the churches. You can't say, I have the authority over you. I'm going to fire you if you don't do what I say. You can't do that to church. Church is a voluntary organization. You have to lead by example. And so it's hard to say, hey, this is the way the example should be. This is the example I'm setting for you. This is what we're going to do. That's why it's tough to be a leader. Buck stops with you. Now, a leader, a leader has to rebuke when something is not going right. He's got to do it with authority, but he's also got to couple that authority with kindness, especially if he's rebuking Christians. Now, Gill says that here, Paul is probably referring to the rebuking of heretics. Rebuke with all authority? That could be, but sometimes you have to rebuke Christians. It's not clear. It could be either one, if you ask me. So, however, whoever you're rebuking, you've got to do it like it, with words that sound like you know what you're talking about, and you're not going to compromise on it. You're not going to be wishy-washy. Well, I don't know. Obviously, if it's something that you don't know, if it's a minor issue, you don't rebuke with all authority. You don't rebuke that. You just say, well, maybe. But if it's something that's obviously wrong, obviously sinful, you have to rebuke it with all authority. Now, apostolic authority over Christians is very, very gentle. We see here in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, Paul tells the Thessalonians, instead we, the apostles, were gentle among you. As a nurse nurtures her own children, or as a nursing mother, that sounds even better, uh, a little baby at, at his mother's breast, breastfeeding, that's pretty gentle. You treat that baby nicely. And Paul says that's how you should treat Christians. I don't have any other scriptures. I think that I found about six other examples of where Paul says to be gentle in the pastoral, or in all of his epistles. I gave a little talk on church this couple of days ago using those scriptures. I don't have them in front of me, but they're everywhere. Paul says to be gentle because people with authority tend to get, it's real easy for them to get overbearing with their authority and, they, and they're not gentle. However, to temper that a little bit, Paul has just told Titus to severely rebuke people. In Titus 1.13, he says this, this testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. And that's probably referring to Christians, not heretics, because it says that they rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. Well, heretics aren't sound in the faith. Christians are sound in the faith. So he's talking about rebuking. So if, if they're about to get into heresy, you better rebuke them sharply. Basically, this means use your head. Use your common sense. Titus, be gentle when you need to be gentle, but if, sometimes you've got to be sharp. So be sharp when you have to be sharp. And then he says, let no one discard you, just like he told Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Paul is saying, let no one disregard you, because people can tend to be rebellious. Even back then... In the ancient world. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Titus chapter 2. I hope you enjoyed it. In chapter 3, we will look at how Paul exhorts Titus to exhort the churches in Crete to be devoted to good works. Hope you stay tuned for that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>